Hey everyone, it's the Notorious Banker Podcast and this is James Baca. 27,000 plus amazing followers on social media. We got 19,800 plus on TikTok at Notorious Banker. 3,200 plus on Twitter at BankBetterGuy. We got 4,000 plus at Notorious Banker on Instagram. And we got like 43 on LinkedIn. I'm trying to do more LinkedIn stuff. That way I could build that number up a little bit more. But guys, thank you so very much. I really do appreciate it so, so much. And of course, yours truly is also the author of High Risk Transaction, The Ryan Coogler Bank of America Incident, now available in ebook form and paperback on Amazon. It's been an amazing, you know, last couple of weeks. I really do feel a lot is going on in the world. Um, a lot of stuff is newsworthy with big banks, and one of the things I want to touch on briefly um, on the second segment of this podcast is just the the email that everyone got sent by Bank of America about uh, the overdraft fees, you know, going down from thirty five to ten dollars, but they're not going down for another thirty days from now, which to me is ridiculous. So I'll have a little brief commentary on that. Um, but you know, so much other stuff going on in the world, high gas prices. I understand it. I get it. A lot of people are impacted by that. And it sucks. There's no other way around it. But, you know, what can I do? What can you do? We can't do much. We got to fill up our tank. We got to go about our day-to-day lives. You know, and, and we talk about inflation and stuff like that. And I want, I want to get to that in just a second here. But, you know, I I used to hear, you know, my dad say, oh, I paid 31 cents a gallon in 1973 when I first started driving. And then I started looking at, at pictures um, from when my mom and dad got married, 1979, 1980. And you see gas prices at like 109. Well, if you do the math, 109 in 1980 is like 380 in today's money. So it's the same shit. The number goes up just because life goes up. You're not paying 10 cents for a beer anymore. You're not paying 5 cents for a soda. You know, I flipped out whenever a 20-ounce bottle of soda crossed the $2 barrier. That was like, you know, the line of demarcation for me. Going to a gas station, get a Dr. Pepper, and it's two nineteen. I'm like, the fuck is going on? It used to be $0.99. Cents. It used to be $1.19. Maybe I'm showing my age, and this now my 39th year of living. Happy birthday to me, by the way. But, you know, you got to get over it. You know, a lot of the times you see those prices go up. And what can I say? Yes, it sucks that it was cheaper a couple of years ago or it was cheaper last year. But it's just the way that it is. You know, things get much more expensive. I was talking to my wife about going to Laughlin, Nevada. And I used to be able to go to Laughlin, Nevada um, on the way to Vegas for like $5 a night. Now it's $50 a night. And here I am bitching about $45 change in price. Yes, it's a lot. But $50 a night for a hotel that I know to be halfway decent, and it's not like a crackhead motel, is really, really good. So, you know, what am I complaining about? But the one thing I do want to complain about, and I think you should complain about that more than gas prices, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, is the high cost of food. Now look, I'm an extreme couponer. I have ways to avoid the spike in food prices. I don't want to get into it. But I have been doing things for years, which has allowed me to pay um, almost nothing on my grocery bill. No, I don't have food stamps. <laughs> That's not it. So uh, try again. But, you know, I, I go into the store and I get myself some sliced ham for sandwiches. Um, what was three forty nine is now four ninety nine. A 12-count of eggs, which was, you know, $1.99 in my local grocery store, is two ninety nine now. And those things, you you know, you aggregate all of those things combined... And you get yourself a $30, $40, $50 more expensive grocery bill. And 
in reality, that's what you should be upset about. Whenever you're complaining about gas prices, yes, I understand it. I get it. I sympathize. I empathize. But food, man, we all got to eat. We all got to eat. And and the simple fact that the the basics, you know, my, my wife likes these little peppers that we get from the grocery store. And they were $4.99 for a bag. Now they're $5.99. You add all those things up on a grocery trip. And yes, I don't spend a lot of money because I'm a couponer. But for the average household, that's $50, $60, $70 more. And, you know, during these crazy times, I want to make sure that people financially are figuring out how to live their life rather than bitch and complain about everything going on. Yes, you should be upset. Yes, you make your voice known by, you know, voting or you make your voice known by talking about it amongst friends and family and your community. But complaining on social media... Buying stickers to put on gas pumps, you know, those aren't the ways of being a normal citizen, okay? You're an American, you, you, you have a total right to do a lot of those things, but wouldn't you rather act? Wouldn't you rather do something meaningful to help other people? Wouldn't you rather start a conversation that's going to allow people to think about it some more rather than just be another meme, be another picture that they post on Facebook? And that's the way that I think of it. Now, this podcast has always been about banks, big banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, City. Um, but there are times where you want to have a commentary about things that are real in life. And this is one of them, guys. I don't have a political affiliation. This is not me talking for one side or the other. My thing is, you know what? Talk about it with friends. Talk about it with family. Talk about it in an intelligent way. And talk about it in the general public. Make your voice heard. Make friends, you know, have communication that's not going to be, fuck you, you're not on my side, I'm not talking to you type of stuff. Having more conversations is really, really important. And the reason why I wanted to do this podcast today, even though there was not a lot really going on in the news um, with the big banks, is I really want to have a conversation about something that's really, really just bothering me. And that's going to be the cost of buying a home. Now, I sit here in this amazing four-bedroom, two-bath house, and I love it. I love everything about it. My wife and I made a great decision uh, to put in on this home six years ago this month. Bank of America almost made me homeless. Bank of America did make me homeless for a week, to be honest with you. I didn't have anywhere to put my stuff. I had to beg my landlord to allow me to stay in my condo one more week. They had a big um, truck out there with supplies because they were going to renovate my condo once we left they're gonna put new flooring in they're gonna paint the walls and everything um to make it more modern like the rest of their condos in that particular complex we're one of the last people to move out you know everyone cycled through once or twice in the six years i had been there at that particular place we begged them we said hey can we stay another week because my bank, my company was being stupid and wasn't allowing us to close on our home loan. And we barely got it. There were a lot of complaining, me threatening to go to the media, me threatening to quit, me protesting Bank of America more than any employee should without getting fired. I did that and I won. So whenever like, I write my book, please try your call again later, where I t- tell you that I took on the state of New Mexico, I sued them, I fought, and I won. Well, guess what? I've taken on bigger fish. I took on Bank of America while wearing a fucking Bank of America name badge. I fought, 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 and I won. I got the keys to my house because I believed that I deserved the keys to my house, despite what Bank of America thought or what Bank of America was claiming. 
So I know people, you know, got their income tax return. Not all people are going to say, hey, let's buy a house. But I know a lot of people in my little general area here have that conversation about the next step. And the next step a lot of the times is home ownership. With the interest rates going up in crazy amounts coming up this year, I just want to have a conversation about the banker's perspective of it, the customer's perspective of it, about buying a house and how it just seems like it's going to be a little bit more gross in 2022 for those people who really, really want to buy a house because it seems like they don't realize how much cheaper it would have been a couple of years ago. And I know that's not what you can really think about in the moment if you need housing in the moment. But are banks going to have the correct conversations to have an ethical conversation about buying a home? Or are they just going to fucking get their sales goals, make their money, and leave someone um, you know, up Shit's Creek with no paddle whenever they have a home loan that they can't afford or a home loan that they really should have waited on? Um, just because some greedy salesperson said, hey, you know what, this is easy money, I'm going to get this, I'm going to book this home loan, and I don't give a fuck about these people after that. So the second segment is going to consist of just me talking about the Bank of America lowering overdraft fee email that everyone got. But the first one is a conversation about home loans. It's something that's really, really bugging me. Not going to pick on Bank of America or Wells Fargo specifically. I'm just going to talk about banks in general. As a salesperson, are you ethically bound, not by any law, but just by ethics, by morality, by you know being a good person, to have a conversation with a customer who wants to buy a home, and telling them, hey, things are a little different now than they're going to be, you know, than they were a couple of years ago, and this is the difference in price, and this is the difference in what you should expect. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit more right after this. So please stick around. Hey everyone, it's James Baca, known professionally as the Notorious Banker, inviting you by my latest book. High Risk Transaction, The Ryan Coogler Bank of America Incident. It's available now on Amazon in Kindle and paperback format. This book discusses the January 7, 2022 incident at the Tony Buckhead District of Atlanta, Georgia's Bank of America branch. Ryan Coogler, acclaimed director of Black Panther and Creed, goes in to take $12,000 cash out to pay an employee of his. Why does one hour later he ends up in handcuffs, suspected of attempting to rob the very bank he stood in line for to get money out? High-risk transaction discusses all the possible scenarios that could have happened the way that they happened in order for Ryan Coogler to be in the back of a police car. It was ridiculous when it happened, and I want to kind of just break down what went wrong and why things like that should not happen inside a billion-dollar bank. Know from a 13-year former manager of Bank of America like myself, and commentator about why banks are getting worse and worse by the day, that there was a lot more going on than meets the eye with this particular case. So please go to kuglerbofabook.com. It'll route you to the Amazon link where you can buy High Risk Transaction, the Ryan Coogler Bank of America incident, available on paperback and Kindle format for as little as $8.99. And I promise you, a healthy portion of the proceeds will go to help people in need as you know, the notorious banker is notorious, pun intended, for giving back to his community, whether it's through donations to food pantries or homeless shelters. The notorious banker realizes the scope of this incident and the fact that this book might be a little bit more successful than my previous ventures. So I promise you that a good chunk of proceeds will go to help people in need. So go to www.kuglerbofabook.com and purchase High Risk Transaction, the Ryan Coogler Bank of America incident, Available on Amazon in Kindle and paperback format 
and we could talk about what went on with this crazy story together. Thank you. All right, everyone, I'm back with more Notorious Banker Podcast. So, you know, my first real memories of life were 1987. I was four years old, and the only thing that I can really remember about being four years old was seeing our house, our first family home, my mom, my dad, and me, and my soon-to-be-born brother, moving into this amazing house. I mean, I thought it was a palace. It was three bedrooms, one bath. That doesn't sound like a palace, right? To have, you know, five people share one bathroom or whatever. Um, But it was, you know, we were moving into a real-life house, and it just seemed amazing at the time. And I didn't have a lot of memories of that house growing up because my mom and dad divorced about five years later. My dad kept the house, and he eventually let it go. He got foreclosed on. And my mom moved on to various trailers until my mom bought a house uh, with my stepdad in the year 2000. And I'll get to that in a second. Um, I just have this love-hate relationship with buying homes. Um, you know, just uh, some background. Of course, I'm a, I'm a Mexican-American man. You know, I grew up in a town that's very heavily Mexican-American and very heavily impoverished. The whole town is. Um, I grew up with the thought of when you buy a house, even if you buy a trailer, a house trailer... That's your forever home. Like, you're literally there until you die. That's just the way that my family, people in that area grow up. You don't just buy a house and then three years later, like, eh, we got to get another house. No, you make do with what you got, and then you have one shot to get it right. It's not like Eminem or something um, in order to get this done. But 1987 rolls around. My mom and dad decide to do the honorable thing. My dad is, what, 30 years old at that point. My mom is 26. Yeah, 26. And they buy this house. Now, I'm trying to look for old records. And I swear to God, I'm going to go to the Scoro County House of Records and try to figure out how much they paid for it and stuff like that. But just trying to figure out just where people were in 1987. I know I probably got some older people who bought houses in the 80s listening to this podcast. And, you know, you know how much it sucked to buy a house in 1987. So I'm looking at... You know, I remember moving in before my my brother was born, October 87. So let's just say September 87 is whenever they locked in their rate. Well, according to HSH.com here, the interest rate for a 30-year fixed, and I know damn well my parents got a 30-year fixed, was 10.96%. Ouch, that's that's a lot, man. My credit cards are not 10.96% currently, although they're going to go up as well. I just think about that, and I think about knowing how much my dad made as a as a chef, as a cook, knowing how much my mom made as a fucking French fry cook. She was literally all she did was make French fries, and she you know made five dollars an hour maybe back then, six dollars an hour if she's lucky. It was a little bit above the minimum wage, but holy shit, you know combined they made ten to twelve dollars less than what I made in my last year at Bank of America. And I consider myself lower middle class, for God's sakes. But to see them go in that house and to understand that the troubles that they had with their marriage, you know, there's there's a lot going on with that. But finances, financial stuff was a big part of it as well. When you're in debt, you're angry. I I know this, I'm in debt right now, and I, I get pissed off at the world. I'm like, damn, why did I do what I do? Why did I convince myself that these were good ideas, and that's why I do what I do now? But 10.96%, and I was I was under the assumption that the house was like $70,000. 
I know for a fact that the house was an FHA loan. Why do I know that? Because one of my first memories was going into an FHA office with my mom. So um, understanding that part of it, knowing that they paid about $450 a month, considering what their salary was, I was like, how the fuck did they do that? Like, it didn't seem like we starved. It seemed like we ate pretty good. And my family worked at a restaurant, so... You know, they could always steal food. I remember my dad coming, you know, to my house with this big box of Frito-Lay products like Cheetos, Lay's, um, Fritos, you know, things like that. And all of those fucking things were expired, but not by like months. They were expired by like a couple days. So the Frito-Lay guy just gave it to my dad. He's like, hey, here you go. We're just going to throw them away anyway. And anytime I had Frito-Lay chips, they were usually expired when I was a kid. And I didn't see that as a like a sign of being poor. I just saw it as one of those things. Hey, like we got a box full of chips for free. Sweet. I mean, I guess my dad was a wheeler and dealer. We went to WWF uh, wrestling events, front row seats, you know. We didn't go to concerts or anything, but we went to like the state fair, carnivals and whatnot. There was a lot of things that... You know, my family did as a family where we spent a lot of money. But, you know, in retrospect, just thinking about my my parents' habits, my mom and dad are both heavy smokers. One was two packs a day and the other was one pack a day. Uh, my dad was a drinker. He did drink maybe, say, six pack of beer a day. Um, you see all those things. You see the, the cost of raising kids, having to buy these fucking kids. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking shit about myself here. Buy these fucking kids a bunch of clothes, and I had to have my Reebok pump shoes in 1991 and all that. It's expensive. It was expensive to raise kids in the early 90s, just like it is in 2022. But the interest rate for homes right now is not 10.96%. It's actually far from that now. But imagine in the 80s and the early 90s, where that interest rate is not knocking down that mortgage payment. So that mortgage payment is already artificially inflated. And it just freaks me out that they paid so much money for this house where, I'll be frank with you, I would not live in that house right now, gun to my head. Not not now, like, 35 years old, this house is. I'm, I'm talking about... I wouldn't live in it now if they said, hey, this is your house. We can lock in a rave and get this for you at a low price. Like, nah, three bedrooms, one bath? No, no, thank you. Even if I had house guests, I don't have any kids, but if I had house guests, I don't want to share my bathroom with them. It's just one of those things, okay? So just seeing where everything is at here, just understanding that they were paying maybe $450, $500 a month, which was a lot of money at the time for them. I don't understand how they made it work, okay? So I'm, I'm looking at, I was trying to look for the Zillow part of it. I want to see how much they paid for the house. I really do. I'm actually probably going to call my mom up at some point in time um, and just ask her, hey, do you remember how much it was? Did you put money down or anything? Because I really want to write a book about this particular topic, especially now that I'm talking about it a lot. Um, the frustrating thing about, records is you know they're not reliable that far back so i couldn't find anything on zillow i couldn't find anything at all but i just know how cheap houses can be in that particular town and knowing that the rates haven't gone up it's just it's just a weird little city that i grew up in so after my parents got divorced 92 um we were in trailers we were in section 8 housing for a long time we were really poor you know it was it was a combative few years growing up 
my mom and dad didn't get along. They didn't have a cordial relationship, so it was always this antagonism. And my mom worked hard at her job. She became, you know, a server and then all the way up to manager of a restaurant. And she made good money. At least I thought she did. And she got together with my stepdad, which I'm just going to be frank with you. He sold drugs. He sold drugs. And I'm fine with that. I know some of you are going to be like, oh my goodness, he's part of the reason why America's gone to hell in a handbasket. I don't give a fuck. When you're 14 years old and you're starving... Would you be rather starving or and have you know good morals and good ethics or have fucking steaks, have pizza all the time, have you know these enchilada dinners that my mom used to make? I know you know enchiladas aren't really like a big thing to a lot of people who are in flyover country, but here in New Mexico, you know you get some green chili, red chili, tortillas, eggs. It's it's just an amazing meal. Had that all the time. Had everything that we wanted when we wanted. I figured out ways to buy my own clothes. I was an eBay entrepreneur back in the late 90s. I figured out ways to pay my bills, but the other bills were paid by my mom and my stepdad, and we were fine. I had no qualms about it, especially when my little sister came around. Um, so in 2000, we finally cut the charade and said, we're not living in this shithole trailer. It was a little, it was, I believe it was one, two, three bedrooms, two baths. It was on this hill right next to the train tracks. You could hear the train every hour. And when I mean hear the train, you could hear it in your bones. That shit vibrated your very soul because we were literally 50 feet away from it. A train derailment would have killed us all easily. We decide, well, my mom decides to get a house. So we go across the channel, the ditch, and we find a house that's four bedrooms, two baths. It's an amazing house. It's older. It's on an acre of land, and it's everything that you would want a family to have. My mom gets a, a subprime loan. And obviously, back then, they were just rubber stamping everything. And my mom wasn't making a shit ton of money, but she was making enough. And you can't factor in my stepdad's money because, hey, he was a drug dealer. And he worked as, like, a ranch hand or something like that. But, I mean, the dude was selling drugs, and I'm fine with it. And in full disclosure, he went to prison, and he did pass away about five years ago. Rest in peace to that man. He is a good man. He was a good man. And I I don't hesitate one second saying how awesome I had it in my younger years because of people like him supporting me and supporting my younger brother. So understanding all these things and seeing a 10.96% interest rate and then you go to the year 2000 and I remember um, it was April of 2000. I'm scrolling down right here. And the reason why I remember is April 2000 was it was just before the end of the school year. I was a junior in high school, so it was the year 2000. There was a major fire called the Cerro Grande Fire in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is one of the biggest fires in the history of New Mexico that was happening while that was happening. And then get this. In April 2000, my best friend, well not my best friend, but my, my closest female friend's dad was arrested for criminally sexually penetration of a minor that he kidnapped one of my neighbors he kidnapped and he did untoward things to him in the middle of some canyon 25 miles away planning to kill him kid escapes ran naked 25 miles to help the 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 father of my friend tries to kill himself by putting a garden hose in his car and trying to suffocate himself he does not succeed he gets arrested 
tried, convicted. He is serving prison time in a maximum security penitentiary. I believe he's eligible for parole in the next six years or so. It's been that long already. Can't believe it. But as fucked up as it sounds, that's how I remember the time, the month and time that I got my second house with my mom. So she gets a subprime loan from a little company called Countrywide Home Loans. 8.29% is the rate right around this time. My mom does not have the best of credit, so I guarantee you that fucker was around 9 or 10. I swear to God, I am going to find out all this stuff from my mom. I need to. Because I need to understand what kind of decision she was making. She wasn't making very much of any decision at this point in time. Um, she's there for a while. My stepdad gets arrested in 2005 or so for um, drug possession, among other things. And my mom remarries. My mom actually remarries when he's still technically there. And it's so weird. She has a, She's on third marriage, and she's there, and she's moved on. And she tells me, 2006 or so, I'm, I'm old already. I'm 23 at this point. I'm going to school. I'm working at Bank of America already. I'm an adult. I'm still living at home just so I can, you know, go through college and whatnot, what kids do these days. And my mom just basically says, I'm done. I'm done in this house. Uh, my new husband does not want to live here because my old husband lived here, and he wants nothing to do with this house. And, hey, take care of your sister. Bye. And it was me, my 12-year-old sister, and my brother is graduating, and he moved on at that point. And I have this house to myself that she's paying for that's fucking falling apart in a neighborhood that sucks. And right around 2008, I have a meltdown. I can't take care of a teenage girl. And that's my sister, but I love her to death, but I can't do that. I'm busy. I have a social life. I want to have a social life. I have all these things happening in my life where my teenage you know, sister is getting introduced to drugs at a very, very young age. I have an aunt who I love to death who was living with us who was you know, going through her own shit at that time. And this house was falling apart. I couldn't keep up with it. I was going crazy. I thought I was going to kill myself. I was having girl problems too. Um, I decided to move on and I moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico. I get a transfer from Bank of America, although they didn't want to transfer me. They had an open spot, and they said, well, you don't qualify, James, but here you go. And I moved here, and I moved here just hoping and praying that I can figure it out. And I'm still here 14 years later. I'm grateful for it. My mom gave up that house, foreclosed in 2010. Bank of America acquired Countrywide. Ironically enough, the company I work for acquired the company that gave my mom the shittiest fucking loan in the world and got her home foreclosed and basically kicked my family out of that house. And we drive by it, and it's still a piece of shit house, but someone owns it. I don't know the story beyond that, but all I know is this was a house that my mom was suckered into buying by some salesperson. 2016, all these years later... Yours truly, the notorious banker, is, what, 33 years old at that point in time? Decide with my now wife, Gabrielle, that, hey, it's time to buy a house. We need to buy a house because, you know what? I'm an employee of the bank. I should practice what I preach. We have money saved up. We want to live our life in this nice little place here. That way we can start a family and do all the things that normal American citizens do. So, um, not to mention I get a 0.25% discount being a Bank of America employee. So, April 2016 rolls around, which is six years from this month. 
Interest rate, 3.72%. 7% less than my parents in 1987. What is that? 5% less than my mom in 2000. It's a steal. You can't beat this loan, man. It's just fucking amazing. It's brilliant. We can't find a house because all the houses have issues. They're either too old or they're too close to neighbors. We don't want to be around neighbors. We're around the like 50th home. The 50th home that we looked at. And we go by our little house right here, and it's unfurnished. We walk in, and I see opportunity. I sound like a banker. We see couches that we could put there. We see a big TV on the wall that we can put. The second bathroom is nice enough to be used as my primary bathroom. And then the primary bathroom is something that's amazing. It's got a soaking tub. It's got a walk-in shower. I call it a Cinemax shower because you could have three people in there at once if you wanted to. I've never had that before. Um, even my, my father-in-law said the same exact shit when he first saw that shower. So um, we see the walk-in closets, dual walk-in closets. we got to get this house. Bought this house for $120,000. Interest rates at the time, 3.72% with my discount, 347 There's some Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac discount that Bank of America says we qualify for that doesn't allow... Um, any PMI mortgage insurance and which allows us to put 3% down so we only have to put 3000 down and we can use the rest to buy couches or washer dryer or whatever so we say hey hell yeah we're going to do this we're going to go about this stuff so these interest rates are super super low apply for it everything is good we have a conversation with the mortgage loan officer first of all you can't do your own home loan and you can't have anyone in the branch do your own home loan so we allowed our my coworker Nancy to be the facilitator to have her call um, an intermediary that way she can get sales credit for it. I remember listening to my wife have the conversation. I didn't want to have the conversation. I had those every single day, where um, you know my wife is talking about yeah we can't wait to get this house. We this we that yeah me and my husband are this and that. And I just hear the person on the other go uh huh uh huh uh huh uh huh oh yeah that's great. So, and then I hear the application, you know, Gabrielle, this is my age, this is my social security number, this is how much I make, whatever. It's like, will you be needing my husband's information too? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get it, we'll get it, yeah, sure. And then, you know, the conversation goes fast. I trail off, I'm doing other stuff. And then she says, yeah, we submitted an application, and then we should get an approval letter in a day. And we got an approval letter. We're approved for 160000 at 3.45%. Whatever, and it was a lower rate than I thought, even factoring in my employee discount, or so I thought. So, we look at this house that we wanted. We said we want to make an offer on it, put an offer on it, and it's, it's good. We're, we apply, start to go through the motions. Month later, and the reason why I tell my story is because this is what's been going on at Bank of America with home loans literally since the rates have been in the threes. Because it seems like everyone and their grandma got a lot of home loans around this time that I know. I help people get into them. But a lot of people got sweet deals. Sweet deals for them and not sweet deals for the bank considering how much work they had to do. Then the fucking Bank of America breaks came on. It's like, oh, hey, you forgot to submit this W-2 form. Um, No, we didn't. We submitted this W-2 form the day that you asked for it. Are you sure you did? Um, yes, my husband works at Bank of America, and he gave it to his co-worker, who gave us a confirmation page and said that, yes, he got that W-2. Oh, well, here it is right here. My mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Nice fucking try. Trying to sabotage our home loan from literally the start. 
And then we get to, I don't know, it was like May 15th. No, it was, it was a little before Memorial Day. The week before Memorial Day. My wife gets a call. And Bank of America says, we're not doing the loan. We can't we can't do it anymore. I was like, why not? Oh, because your, your husband's credit. Well, let me backtrack on this. The person, I, it, it literally bugs me to this day, tells my wife, you didn't tell me that you were married. And I'm like, dude, my my wife said, my husband this, my do you need my husband's information? Yeah, yeah. I knew that that fucking person wasn't paying attention. I've been ignored my whole life. I know when people ignore me, and I know when people ignore her. She didn't, she submitted the application. When I say she, I mean the mortgage loan officer submitted my wife's application by omitting my credit information in the application process. So we've been going through this process for a month now on a lie because this person didn't fill it out correctly or she either forgot or she wasn't paying attention to my wife. So she basically accuses my wife of trying to hide the fact that she was married, which we never hid. State in New Mexico requires two people to be, if they're married, to sign on documents, community property and all that stuff. So my wife's like, we told you this now. He's like, you didn't tell us that. You didn't tell us he was an associate. And according to his debt to income, his debt to income, yeah, I fucked up on my credit cards and my student loans. Um, so we can't do the loan at this rate. In fact, we can't do the loan at all. So we're sorry. We had already put our notice in at the condo and everything. And then the one month Fuck You Bank of America tour started where I literally fought for my own existence and living in a house. And nowhere to live. And Bank of America just literally seemed to put the brakes on everything. On everything that we tried to do to save the loan. They took away our special Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae package. They took away our home loan that gave us the best rate possible. My wife got locked in at like 4.7%. And we're only, we were only paying like seven ten a month. And we're paying like eight forty now with all the other shit that goes on. Which... It's not bad, guys. It's not bad. It's a good loan. And we're locked in. So even if the rates go to shit, guess what? I'm locked in for 24 more years. And it feels good. I knew that it was the right time to buy because of the rates. You just understood it whenever you had customers to talk to. If you're a novice and you didn't know shit about home loans, and then you wouldn't really know that, hey, this is the thing that you got to do. So, so why am I telling you my life story in the first 20 minutes here? Well... Okay, so the home loan rates now, and I'm going to Bank of America's rate. I'm, I'm, I put a $150,000 home, which is on the low end, man. That's that's as low as it freaking gets right there. And I put a 5% down payment um, with 5% down payment in my zip code. So a 30-year fixed monthly payment, P&I, principal and interest, if you put $7,600 down, the interest rate's 5%, which is um, way below what my parents paid, which is 10.9, but way higher than what we were quoted at 3.4 you know, or whatever. $811 a month P&I. You include interest, you include taxes and all that. We're talking a comma. We're talking over $1,000 a month in New Mexico, and you guys are like, oh, 1000 a month, I wish I could have that. That's a big change from $700 a month what I paid. Just a few years ago. So, you know, I talk about all this and it's advantageous to banks, obviously, to lend now because they're getting more interest income and they're going to continue to get more. 
Um, if Bank of America quotes are correct, where it's going to go up 11 times the interest rate this year, um, and if it goes up a quarter point each time, we're talking 8% interest rates where my mom was in the year 2000. And who knows what the monthly payment's going to be on a $150,000 house. And we know damn well that the houses aren't going to be $150,000 everywhere because the supply and demand is just going up. My house is worth a quarter million dollars now. And I got to tell you, it's not worth a quarter million dollars. It was worth what I paid for it, which is half that. It's a beautiful house. It really is. I'm not lying. But it's not worth twice what they say that it's worth. And it's just not, okay? So my thing and the thing that's bugging me about this and the reason why I want to have this conversation is, you know, you think about the conversations that bankers are going to have. And I know this as a former banker at Bank of America about home loans. There's still some James Baca asshole at Bank of America who has to print out the rates every day and puts that 5% interest rate with a 5.43% APR and they have to smile and tell you it's fucking chocolate ice cream with sprinkles. They have to tell you, guys, Mr. Customer, the interest rate is only 5% right now and then in a year... Mr. Customer, that interest rate is only 8.1%. Can you believe that? I would love to get you in a home right now. I know you guys are looking, and I really, really think that now's the time for you to buy that home. Do you mind if I put you on the phone with a mortgage loan officer, and they can kind of go over your the particulars with you, maybe get you locked in on something? So, you know, you have that conversation there's going to be people every year that are like, you know, it's time to buy a home. We've got to do it now. I want, I don't want to pay rent anymore. And these people who don't know anything about houses are going to go into a bank and they're going to ask to get locked into a rate that's fucking higher than shit. And they're going to pay that the next 30 years, even if the interest rates go way down in like five years. Here's my thing with that. And this is just a moral dilemma that I had. And it took me this long to get to this point. Do bankers, and, and the, I know the answer is no, but should bankers have an obligation to talk to customers about, one, how much things have changed just in the last year alone, two, let them know what that means for the bottom line, and three, let them know that, you know what, there's going to be an opportunity to refinance this loan out in a couple of years, even if it's not with the bank that you work with. Now, I think this is really important. I really think that banks are going to have to show because in the year 2000 there was no social media in 1987 there was no fucking twitter to blast whatever bank my parents went through to get this shit fha loan but there's going to be a conversation now in 2022 or three where bank of america is going to be and chase and wells fargo and all these big banks are going to be on notice you're going to have that conversation with a low-income person who's looking to buy their first house for their kids and to live the American dream, white picket fence, and all that bullshit. Do you mean to tell me that your conversation is going to be exactly the same with them as it would have been in 2016 whenever the interest rates were lower? I think it's going to be, and I think that that's fucking scary. I think that's terrifying to me. Because I really think that we're going to have another crisis where people can't pay their loans. There's going to be tons of foreclosures in 10, 15 years. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be scary. It's going to be scary in 2037, whatever. I'm going to be fucking 55 years old or some shit like that. And the world is just going to go even crazier then. Because the Bengals 
of today. The Bengals of 2022, the Bengals, how they've been the last 10 years because I've been working in the banking industry that long, are not going to change. In fact, they're going to push those bankers to get higher, more applications. They're going to have looser restrictions with getting people approved. That way they can, quote, prove that they're still working hard to make sure people can get into their first homes or whatever, blah, 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 blah. All this shit going down, and you're like, oh, my God. There's going to be people in my neighborhood that have 10% interest rates on their houses, and they're not going to be able to pay it. A lot of the people that, that live in my neighborhood have jobs that can easily go away. They easily go away. They can't pay the bills. They're going to get foreclosed. This is going to be fucking Detroit in my neighborhood here. And not no offense to Detroit. I know you guys are having a renaissance, but holy shit, I almost bought a house in Detroit for $500 in 2009. That's how bad it was. I wanted to say I was a homeowner in Michigan, but taxes and all the bullshit that goes along with that scared me. I didn't want to do it. So it, it freaks me out because I know that as a banker, you're held to a goal. I had to do 15 home loan referrals a week. 15. You multiply that by 52 weeks. That's what? 780 home loans. And there's 110,000 people in this town. So basically, you almost have to do an, uh, a home loan referral for 1% of the whole town. Imagine doing the, the home loan referral for 1% of the whole town for New York City. Fucking, what, 200,000 people? <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous number. And to have 15 in a city that has 100 banks, that you're not the only bank. And not everyone's looking to buy a home at every single point of the day. And you're held to that goal. It was impossible. The punishment for not hitting your goal every week is you had to work Saturday mornings at 7.30 in the morning and do training. Do role play on how to be a better salesperson. Guess who was in fucking role playing training every Saturday? Yours truly. Missed out on funerals. Missed out on weddings. Baby showers. Missed out on family. Missed out on friends. Missed out on conversations with my wife. Breakfast, you know, at home on a Saturday morning making pancakes with bacon. Couldn't have that shit. I had to wake up and I had to go... James, you know, you didn't hit your sales goal for home loan referrals, so we need to do a role play. I'm going to be a 42-year-old middle-aged housewife who makes $20,000 a year, and you have to sell me on a home loan opportunity. Like, this is what we literally did. We played fucking acting games for two hours before we opened the doors, and guess what happened on Saturdays? No one fucking showed up. No one showed up on Saturdays. This is the kind of stuff that bugs me, because I know that those goals are going to be exactly the same in these branches. You know... I guess in, in in hindsight, the fact that like a B of A is closing, you know, branches in a lot of small towns is good, which means that you can be a banker doing this shit in a bigger town where people make more money and it's still a practical conversation to this day. But I had to sales push the shit out of every person. There were people that I would have conversations with that I knew couldn't get a home loan, but I sold them on the dream just to get that referral. Just so they can get denied. Just so I didn't have to work on a Saturday. It's fucked up. There's this girl I used to talk to. I used to put her name in the home loan pipeline every week. And every week she would pick up. And every week she would have, no, I'm not thinking, I'm not interested. And then she'd hang up on them. And they would disposition the referrals. So they would say, is it quality or not quality, whatever. Some home loan officers will put it as quality because they, they're like kind of like tipping you. They're giving you a solid saying, hey, thanks for the try. Some people say, oh, it's not quality. You're wasting my time, James. I used to get yelled at by these people because they have goals too. 
And then I would get yelled at by my boss and saying, why are you putting that referral? He's like, you told me to. You told me to get permission. I got permission. I did it. And just because it's a bad conversation, it's my fucking fault. Fuck that. Stupid. It, it makes no sense. So I know that these people are going to get goals. Are they going to have the conversation that, hey, Mr. Johnson, just to let you know the interest rate right now is about 8%. I want to let you know in 2015, just a few years back, it was at 3.5%. You know, I got a home loan right around that. It's a great rate. I wish everyone could get this rate right now. It's not where you need to be. So this is what you need to do. Just remember this conversation because if I don't work here, if some if this bank doesn't exist anymore, and you see here, oh, the interest rates are going down. Please have a conversation with a home loan provider. Please have a conversation about refinancing. Save yourself tens of thousands of dollars. I can't save you this money now. I know you want to get into the home. I can't save this money for you right now because just the way that America is right now. But I want you to remember that if you hear anything about interest rates going down, have that conversation with the banker. Have that conversation with someone over the phone. It's important to have that. This is not a forever conversation. This is a very fluid conversation that you should have at some point in time down the road if you hear they're going down. I absolutely don't believe that big banks are going to have that conversation. They're going to just say, hey, would you like to apply for a home loan? And they're just going to get those home loans. They're going to get their sales goals. They're going to get their bonuses. Some people are going to get the keys to new homes that they can't really afford. And they're going to be stuck with this payment that they might have to actually give up on. Fuck up their credit for the rest of their life. File for bankruptcy or whatever. Because James had a sales goal. And he didn't tell that particular customer, hey, you know what? This is what you should look out for going forward. I had an experience with the bank. Wasn't fun. And this is what you should avoid going forward. In case you and I don't talk again. That stuff means the world to me, man. And I know that big banks are not in the business of letting people know about those things. Because it impacts the today as opposed to the future. Now the bank always talks about, hey, you know what? Invest for your future. Save for your future. Get a savings account. Get Merrill Lynch. Get investment advice from us and grow your money. That way you're 40, 50 years old. But the whole point of that goal is to bring a shit ton of money now. That's why they have it now. Yeah, they, they kind of want to help you grow it because that means that their assets are growing too. But they're really talking about right now. You know, it's 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 stupid it makes no sense but bankers are meant to think about now even though they sell the customers on the future well a home loan is nothing but the future it's locked in for minimum 10 years all the way up to 30 sometimes 40 years to buy a home and it's a significant portion of one's life and you're gonna have that conversation not have a seat about hey the elephant in the room is interest rates are up i know you got to do this now but this is what you need to do if they go down are you really doing that, bankers? And if you're not, how fucking dare you? Seeing my family go through the, the pains of divorce in you know the early 90s because of what was going on in the late 80s with home loans. Seeing my parents pay 11% interest for that shithole house. It was a great house at the time, but it's a shithole now, okay? To understand that, yeah, I understand that was what was going on at the time but in reality would i rather have an honest banker tell my parents in the late 80s hey you know this isn't for you right now you know save some money get yourself in a better position things might get better you might get more financially set or whatever no it was a fucking teeter-totter at that point in time and in 2000 with my mom who was literally just cooking fucking french fries for a living 
gets a home through a company that is now Bank of America. They say, oh yeah, you too can own a home. Let me just rubber stamp this fucking loan for you at 8%. Pay some, like literally she paid about $650 a month, which is not that much more, not that much less than what I pay 20 some odd years later for a way better house. They suckered my mom in and the fact that, hey, she wants to take care of her kids. While some guy wanted to take care of his kids by fucking misleading and sending my mom down a path that she probably couldn't um, navigate by herself. I guarantee you my mom has never had a thought about refinancing her home ever in her head, ever. And I worked at a fucking bank and I know that she's never thought, oh, hey, can I lower this? My mom doesn't think that way and a lot of people don't think that way. As I mentioned, especially in this particular area, a lot of people when they buy houses, it's their forever house. Unless they're moving to another city or state, that's their house until the day they die. That's literally the way that a lot of people think. So if a lot of people already make that assumption that this is the house that they're going to die in, and they go into the bank, they're not asking that question of the banker. So it's incumbent upon the banker to at least kind of broach that subject about... What are your 10-year plans, 20-year plans? you plan on being this house 20 years? If so, this is what you should do. Give that person options. Time is not uh, uh, you know, in the favor of the customers or the bankers about giving detailed service. But I think ethically, you need to have that detailed service because otherwise, 15 years from now, 10 years from now, you're going to have a lot of people defaulting on these home loans. And it's not going to be the fault of them. Life is going to get in the way. It's going to be the fault of bankers like showing people that, yes, they can get into these home loans by doing this, that, and the other thing. Making these empty promises of being there if they need help and then not being there when they do need help. The regulatory stuff behind the scenes with home loan stuff and making sure your debt to income and all that is um, on point is there. And it's way better than it was in those previous times with my mom and my mom and my dad. But you get to the point where you massage the numbers, you figure out a path to where, hey, like we're going to figure out a way to get you into this loan or whatever. Whenever you have an associate trying to figure out things to get you into the loan, they're basically giving you a shitty deal. They're not going to give you a great deal when trying to get into the loan. They're just figuring out any way you can keep that door open by prying, you know, putting, propping your foot in there, making sure that that door doesn't close. And that's the people that I worry about. And especially in this town, whenever they're having conversations with big banks, I know that those conversations aren't happening because you know why? They wouldn't happen with me. And I'm a good person because my company would not let me talk about the future or what they should do two years later. They say, focus on the now. Your sales goals are in the now. Your money is in the now. And I can't help my people down the road. I, I told people 10 years ago, to make sure you have a conversation with whoever sits in this chair 15 years from now. And I felt good about that. I probably was in the wrong with that according to Bank of America. Because you're not supposed to talk like that. But you know what? Is that person in the same chair at B of A or Wells Fargo whatever having that same conversation saying, you know what? Make sure that this is not your only conversation about buying a house ever. I doubt it. I am scared for the future, guys, and the reason why I wanted to have this commentary is simply the fact that I saw my parents struggle, I saw my mom struggle twice. We're getting to that point where we're going to see 8% interest rates on home loans, and it's going to be fucking trippier and shit. And people aren't going to want to buy homes, people aren't going to want to refinance because they can't. 
the people who buy homes are the ones who shit out of luck with shit rates. Are they given the education about refinancing and talking about it in the future? I sincerely doubt it. But I can tell you one thing that as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to have that conversation and I'll post it here on this podcast. I really thank you for listening to this segment. I didn't know what this was going to be, but I just felt like I needed to just have it. And I did, and it felt good. So I'm just going to talk about the overdrafting from Bank of America in just a second, so please stick around. Potential sponsors, my name is James Baca, also known as the Notorious Banker. I am the host, creator, and proprietor of the Notorious Banker Project. I am also a consumer advocate who helps customers solve complex financial issues. I would love to have you as a sponsor of my content. The Notorious Banker has a critically acclaimed podcast of the same name, listened to by 10,000 people an episode, and we also have a very active Twitter community with thousands of posts monthly, creating millions of impressions and engagement per month. Also, a burgeoning young adult fan base on TikTok at Notorious Banker with 5,700 loyal followers and growing. I am looking for a dedicated sponsor who will help my project grow and will also let me be a loyal advocate for your company or product. 13 years in a financial institution has given me sales skills, which will help me promote your company as I continue my journey into bettering financial lives. Ad packages are as affordable as $10 cost per mil, which includes cross-promotion on my social media channels, podcasts, and any direct promotion desired by you. Please contact me at james at thenotoriousbanker.com or go to thenotoriousbanker.com slash sponsorship for more details. Let's enlighten the amazing follower base of The Notorious Banker with your product, my podcast, and our goal to better our followers' financial lives. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, I'm back with more Notorious Banker. Man, I thought I was never going to stop talking in that first segment. Almost 40 minutes, holy crap, but I really feel... um, emotional about that because i know there's gonna be so many people who are gonna get into these home loans that they can't afford and and the bank is gonna tell them that they could afford it but do you really want to trust a big bank with a conversation about what you can and can't do five or ten years from now dude the person that's sitting in the banker's chair literally does not give a shit about you the second that that application hits okay my my brain works like a goldfish from 10 to 11 a.m I have to get a sale from 11 a.m. to 12 a.m. I got to get a sale, 12 to 1, and so forth. You're told not to think too deep about these people. You are literally a machine, just looking for sales, looking for new accounts, looking for home loans, and you can't you can't focus on one person because that's not your job. Your job is to guide them to these you know life events or whatever. It's stupid. One thing I guided a lot of people on over the years was overdraft fees and. You know, seeing how the overdraft fee impacts so many people, it just bugs me that for so long, big banks got away with charging, you know, $35 or more for an overdraft fee for something that was not the fault of the customers. It was actually the fault of the bank for strategically, you know, stacking transactions to make it hit harder. That way you could hit the four, sometimes seven overdraft max in one day and get charged a couple hundred bucks for your troubles. Well, Bank of America is changing that. Um, we announced a couple of months ago that they are lowering the overdraft fee from $35 to $10, which is a huge drop, 70% drop. But it was going to be effective May 24th, and they sent everyone out an email this week basically just reassuring them, hey, the overdraft fee is going down on May 24th. You know, go to Twitter, and there's hundreds of people saying, well, why don't you fucking do it now? There's going to be thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who get overdraft fees between right this very second and May 24th. And the banks say, oh, you know, in the future, the, the overdraft fee is going to go down to $10. Well, it doesn't fucking help me now. 
You took money from me now. You tell me you're going to be better later. That's what an abuser sounds like. Oh, I, I will be better next time, I promise. I just had a bad night. It, it'll never happen again. Overdraft fees are a scourge. And the fact that Bank of America got pressured and other banks got pressured into lowering or eliminating overdraft fees is a good thing. Because we know that they're full of shit. They know that we know that they're full of shit. So Bank of America said, you know what, we're going to you know, take the, take the bull by the horns. And we're going to make sure our customers have the best experience here. And for that, we are reducing this fee from $35 to $10. And we're only you know giving you a limit of two overdraft fees per day. It's still 20 bucks you're taking away from someone who doesn't have a lot of money. If someone gave me 20 bucks right now, I'd go fucking do cartwheels. Because I'd go buy some Popeye's chicken and just open down the road for me. So they sent this email out. And of course, like I said, everyone on Twitter was complaining and bitching about it. Which I understand. I get. You know, because you're telling me something that you're going to do in the future. Why aren't you helping now? You know, and, and I understand that part of it. The reason why the bank is waiting is is uh, an antiquated reason to be frank with you it's and it makes no fucking sense for a company that prides itself on being digital this digital that digital whatever the reason why it takes so long is because they're printing out tens of millions of deposit agreements schedule of fees whatever to give to customers with these updated changes when you can very well just email them the changes and say hey it's effective right this very second they choose to print out the paper forms of it, which I don't understand. I get why as a salesperson, but I don't understand why we have to wait for the lowering of these fees for this paperwork that no one ever fucking reads. Well, no one's going to read it, but we have to wait for it, then the fees are going to be lowered. But here's just my two cents on this, and I'm going to wrap it up because I've been talking a long time already. If you have the power to inform 67 million customers of this dramatic change in how you do business... Effective one month from now, you have enough power to change it right now. Let's just fucking be honest. This is just all busy work. This is all, you know, you ever watch like a show like Pawn Stars where they, they kind of tease some big revelation throughout the show and they kind of tease it at every commercial break and then you get to the end of the show and it's not much of a revelation? And like, the fuck is that? Them teasing how much they're helping customers by not helping customers for the final month between now and the time that these fee lowerings are supposed to go into effect. It's just total Bank of America in a nutshell. It, it really, really is because they're trying to milk this for as long as they have because I don't think that these fees are going to go up in price anytime soon. In fact, I think they will go away. But I really think they want to milk as much PR as possible from it. And that's why they sent this email out to everyone. That way people could talk about it on social media. But it backfires like everything else in Bank of America. The part I want to get to is courtesy refunds. There are people that I talk to over the years on social media that says, Well, you know, anytime I have an overdraft fee, I go to a manager. And they always take care of it for me because I'm such a great customer. Okay, yeah, that's fine. If you're such a great customer, why are you always in the negative? I understand millionaires have overdraft fees too. I've seen millionaires have overdraft fees. But you wouldn't be in the negative if you were thought of as a great customer by the bank. The bank would talk to you, inform you, figure out ways to make sure that that didn't happen to you. To make sure that you had a positive experience. That we can keep your money there. I hate people who do that. Say, oh, they always take care of it. It's because they know that you have other business. For other people who don't have money, who don't have deeper relationships with the bank, they go to ask for a courtesy refund, they get denied now. And I guarantee...
guarantee you 100% that there's going to be no courtesy refunds for this $10 fee going forward once it's effective at the end of May. Someone has a mistake that happens, an honest mistake. First time they overdraft in 30 years. They typically have a lot of money in their account, but this month was a little tight. And they just had this little screw up and they had a little $10 charge. Hey, can you take care of this for me and refund it? Because it was just a, it was just an oversight. My partner, you know me, I always have a good balance. You can put that in the refund decision tool and the Bank of America is going to have that scripting pop up. Well, you know, Mr. Johnson, unfortunately, I cannot refund the fee today. But what I can do for you is give you tools on how to avoid the fees in the future. Those customers are going to be fucking pissed off. The fact that you acknowledge that these fees are too high and you lowered them significantly, but then also you say that you can't refund it even though we don't technically need the money because we lowered the, we lowered the fee from 35 to 10 because it was never really a big part of our revenue. It was just a way to put the cherry on top, so to speak. Customers are going to be pissed off and customers are going to see um, worse customer service because of this. Because they're going to tell you it's probably going to be in the deposit agreement that you cannot you cannot ask for a courtesy refund. You cannot um, ask for an override. You can't appeal these decisions. They're final and we will not have any future state of that. Mark my words, that's going to be the biggest thing with this overdraft fee lowering, especially at B of A. Because B of A is the most notorious, no pun intended, about charging these crazy fees. And they're the worst when it comes to refunding the fees. I used to be in part of those conversations with re- refunding fees. I used to have to deny refunds to people who were sick because the system, quote-unquote, told me that I couldn't do it. And it's just a fucking disgrace. You couldn't make a decision without, quote, the system making the decision for you. It's sickening. So mark it down here. I just wanted to just be on, be in front of it because I know it's going to happen. There's going to be some New York Times article about it. And then I'm going to say, I told you so, unless they fucking talk to me first. Mark it down. Courtesy refunds, bank errors, whatever. If it causes overdraft fees, banks will not refund those fees. I, I, I guarantee you that. That's just the way that it's going to be. That's the way they are. And they're going to say, well, we've taken you know an active approach on making sure that these don't impact our customers. But there will be times where, unfortunately, these things do happen. And we're going to work hard with our customer to make sure that they do not happen again. Okay, you can work with me. But can you give me my fucking $10 back, please? Trust me, it's coming. I'll get into a deeper dive about this as the weeks go on because this fee is going to finally be lowered on May 24th. But for now, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. It was just kind of a unique podcast I wanted to do, and I'm really glad you listened to it. I really appreciate um, your thoughts uh, about my project over the years. You know, we're nearing 20,000 followers on TikTok. We're nearing, you know, millions and millions of impressions every month on social media. And I can't be more grateful for the people who pay attention to me, listen to my rantings and ravings. I put their two cents into because everyone has to deal with big banks in some form. Trust me. Even if you actively seek out smaller banks, there's a day of reckoning where you have to deal with a big bank in some form. Whether it's a business you frequent or an ATM you have to go to once. There's always a conversation about a big bank in your general conversation. But I thank you guys for listening to my podcast and understanding how passionate I am about this. Whether it's home loans or overdraft fees, I, I, I care. Whether it's a $10 overdraft fee or a several hundred thousand dollar house, I care. I want to make sure that people who are bank customers of these big banks get treated right, treated ethically, and get the best deal that they possibly can when banking at a big bank like that. 
You can find me on Twitter at BankBetterGuy and NotoriousBanker on TikTok and Instagram. TheNotoriousBanker at gmail.com is my email. You can always DM me on Twitter if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas for this podcast. You can buy my book, High Risk Transaction, The Ryan Coogler Bank of America Incident, at Amazon in ebook, Kindle format, or paperback. For as little as $8.99, you can actually read it for free if you have Kindle Unlimited. I'll be back with another podcast shortly, but in the meantime, thank you so very much for listening to me. You have a great week, and you know what? We're going to continue to find big banks because it's the right thing to do. Talk to you soon, everyone. Goodbye.